Clear back in 1963, uh, there was a, a play, a re- actually a, a comedy review, if you know what that is, was being performed on its, on its regular schedule in London, England. Uh, the audience was enjoying it. They were laughing along, completely absorbed. Uh, and in one skit, this actor was, was trying to portray how, how much he was ignoring this woman he was with, whether his wife or girlfriend or, or whoever. And, and to help portray that, um, he had this radio that he was listening to very intently as a way to demonstrate to this woman that he wasn't listening to her. And each night of the performance, the actor would turn on his transistor radio really loudly, you know, to add to the effect. But on the night of November 23rd, 1963, in the evening over in England, the actor turned that radio on and everyone in the theater learned at the same time that American President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. And it was like reality broke into their pretend world. The evening just couldn't be fun anymore. They couldn't go back into the pretend world because of the way reality had sort of rudely interrupted. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, in a way, was kind of living in a pretend world that, if we're honest, we all try to live in times. David was living in that pretend world where it seems like my desires and my expectations are really what matters in this world. And when we enter that pretend world, it's very easy also to think, I won't let things get out of control. Like if I pursue something that maybe God says isn't best, I can handle it. Because what really matters is that I get my expectations, my desires filled. That's where David was, which led him to commit the sin he sinned with Bathsheba that we've talked about over the last several weeks, and and then to commit the murders that he committed to cover up that, that sin. Well, then in the first part of chapter 12. God sent the prophet Nathan into David to sort of turn on the radio. WGOD, broadcast reality into David. The reality that you're not in control of the consequences of your sin. Uh, The reality that the most important thing in your world is not your desires and your expectations. Uh, The reality that I see, God said, what you have done, and there's going to be some terrible consequences now that you can't undo. To his great credit, David confessed his sin when he was confronted with them. There was no... No justification, no denial, no projection. He didn't blame another person. The situation in his life, I mean, given what's going, everything that's been going on, 
He just, I've sinned against the Lord. And then last week we read through Psalm 51 and talked about why confession is important and what it does for us. But we're going to rejoin the David story here where reality has set in. That David's time in the pretend world has done a great deal of damage. And now David is going to have to walk with the Lord through the consequences the Lord is not going to remove. Forgiveness doesn't cancel the temporary, the earthly consequences of sin. So let's Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 through 31 to see how David responds to some terrible consequences. The, the first one that we'll read about this morning is that David's infant son that's been born to Bathsheba is going to die. David has already told him that's going to happen. How does David respond when he asks God to spare his child and God says no? 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. Let's read the rest of the chapter, starting there. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that the child was very sick. And David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside David in order to raise him up from the ground but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. And then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, when the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. And so, they, so he said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he's dead. So David arose from the ground and he washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes and he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped God. Then he came to his own house and when he had requested, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died... You arose and ate food. Verse 22. David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and David named him Solomon. And now the Lord loved Solomon and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Now Joab fought against Rabbah and the sons of Ammon and captured that royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the, of the army together and camp against the city and you capture it or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me. So David gathered, gathered all the people and went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. And then he took the crown of their king from his head 
its weight was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and, and that crown was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and he made them pass through the brick kiln. That just means they were put into the service of the Israelites working in those ways. And thus, day, thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. There's our passage. And we better start here. God had previously announced in the first half of the chapter that this child that was born uh, by Bathsheba to David would die. And in this passage, obviously, he does. And, and that seems just pretty awful to us. What makes it worse is there's no way to explain away the culpability of God in what happens to this child. You know what I mean? We can't explain this one away because we're told, as plain as we can be told, the Lord struck the child. What happened to this baby was done to this baby by God. To make matters worse, this isn't an isolated incident in the Bible. When God sent the flood in Noah's day, how many babies were on the earth then? When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, did they have infants? I think it's safe to assume they did. In 1 Samuel, God told Samuel, God told uh, the king Saul to destroy, to wipe out the Amalekites, including small children. How, how can we continue to think that God is love like we're told He is? That God is good when God also can do stuff like this? What gives? Has God done something immoral, wicked here? And if not, why not? That's what many will tell you. You know why I don't believe in God? Look at his book. There's no way I can believe in a God who would kill small children. Did God do something wrong? No. The first reason why, and this may sound a little bit cold, but it's true. Because this earth and everyone who lives in it was created by God. It therefore belongs to God, and God can do whatever God wants with this planet, and it's, it can't be wrong because it's God who does it. In, in the very same way, if you created something, you made something in your wood shop, you painted a painting, can't you do whatever you want with that? thing. You can frame it. You can display it. You could bury it in your backyard. You can 
put it down in your driveway and back over it with your car. Your neighbors might think you're nuts, but, are, but can they tell you you're doing anything wrong? It's yours. The psalmist starts, Psalm, what is it, 24? Psalm 24 begins this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And all who live on it. Every person who has ever lived on this planet belongs to God just as surely, in fact, more so, than anything you can make in your woodshop belongs to you. One reason we're, we're so offended by a story like this, God doing something that does seem wrong. And make no mistake, if you or I did this thing, it would be very, very wrong, right? But one reason why we're so offended by the idea of God doing something like this to another person and it feels so wrong is because we carry around with us this... Uh, this mistaken idea that this world, our world, is about us. That we are the point. That the greatest thing on this planet is, are the people, the individuals who inhabit it. then our lives, again, are about our desires, about our expectations. And when something happens that goes against our expectations and desires, it's so easy to feel like, well, then the God who's in control of this whole thing has wronged me. But we, we haven't ever been wronged by the God who created us because we are not our own. None of this is really ours. It's all God's. Now, that being said, we're also told by God in his word that God is not diabolical in the way he deals with what he has made. He's not senselessly violent. He's not mean, wicked, terrible. We're told he is love. We're told he's fair, just. So what's loving? What's fair? What's just? About David surviving even though he sinned sins that God said he should die for. And David's son dying when he hasn't sinned a single sin yet. He's only been, he's only been alive for a week. This can only fit with a God who is fair and who is love if this is true. This world is not all there is. This world is not even the main event of our existence. When we get to verse 23, we see really plainly that David is convinced that he will see his son again, that a glorious afterlife awaits this infant. 
David is, is convinced, that I, I can't bring him back here, but I will go to where he is. And some people will tell you that just means the grave. Well, what's comforting in that? There are things worse than dying. And David was comforted by, by that truth. And if, as I believe, the, the grace of God that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, if that extends to, to people who are either too young or not developed enough in a way to be able to knowingly sin, if the grace, the blood of Christ covers those and eternal life is waiting, then, then what, Jesus, what God did for this child was the best thing he could have done for this child. There, there's something worse than dying. Paul wrote it this way to the Philippians. Paul said, for me, living is Christ and dying is what? Gain. And then Paul said, I feel torn between the two, living and dying. I don't even know which one I want more. Because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more vital for your sake than I remain in the body. Listen, if, if as I am convinced, the, the grace of God extends to very young children, that baby's death was gain for that child. Even if that were not true, and it is, I'm convinced. If at the end of every human being's life, if the Bible is true, that we're going to stand before God in judgment, then wouldn't I be better off if God knew that I were not going to accept Christ and be redeemed by his blood? Wouldn't it still be better for God to take me off of this earth before I can just stack up more and more guilt that I will have to answer for one day? Of course. There's a reason that the death of this child is written as, as a consequence for David, not a consequence for the child. It is a consequence for David. We could talk more about that, but we'd better move on for time's sake. We, we've spoken a little bit about, we've thought about how God struck the child. Now let's think about how this illness and death of his child struck David. Many of us, unfortunately, have, have understood, have known the very unique sort of panic and fear and pain that comes with the severe illness of a little one. David is no exception. When David's son falls ill, David falls on his face. And for a week, he's in this mostly canatonic state of, of prayer and begging God for the life of his infant son. Some of us know how that feels. David, he fasted, he refused to eat. He was in such bad shape, his servants were worried about him. They tried to get him up. You got to eat something, boss. He just wasn't having it. But on the seventh day, 
his servants are informed that the child has died. And they're scared to tell David. They start to say things to each other like this. Man, I don't want to tell him that the baby has died. Look how bad he's been while the baby's just been ill. And they, and they use this Hebrew word. They, they say that David might do something reckless if we tell him that his son has died. But, but David, we see David's really sad and scared, but he's not dumb. He sees the servants whispering to each other. He knows something is up. And he guesses correctly. Is my boy, has my boy died? And they say, yeah, he's died. And then upon hearing the news, David shocks his servants by getting up. And he does our equivalent. Like if this were today, David showers and shaves, changes clothes, and then our equivalent of it, he goes to church and has a little private worship service with the God who just killed his child. His servants are confused. (laughs) I think understandably so. So they ask him, like, what gives here, boss? Why does it seem like you're better now (laughs) that your child is dead? You're better now that he's dead than you were when he was sick, but he was still alive. There was hope. And David's explanation for his, for his behavior, for his change in behavior, I think is the heart of this passage. I think it's very instructive for us. David says this, Hey, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, that this child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? The answer to that question is no. He says, I, I will go to him, but he will not turn to me. David, David has once again become a model for us. He took a break from being a model we should follow here for a while, but he's back to being the model, the, the one who pursues after God's heart. first way he's a model for us is David goes toward the God who has caused his pain. How is David able to do that? I mean, God clearly told David, David, your son's going to die. God strikes the child, the child dies. But even in the meantime, God goes straight toward the God who has caused his pain. How does he do this? Well, David is convinced, in spite of what has happened to him, that God is a God of grace. David heard God say, David, your son is going to die. True? Yes. Listen, David also heard God in his word, his law, that David loved with all of his heart and wrote poems about. God wrote this in the law. If you commit murder, we'll kill you. If you commit adultery as an Israelite in Israel, we got to kill you. God confronts David with this truth on reality radio. I know what you've done. And then he hears God say this, you shall not die. 
God's a God of grace. So, so David hears God say, your son is going to die. And David said, well, he told me I was going to die and I didn't. So who knows? The Lord may be, what's that word right there? The Lord may be gracious to me. Maybe he'll do that grace thing again. I know, God, you said my child is going to die, but here I am to ask you to do some more of that grace thing you did. A minute ago when you told me I wouldn't die, will you do that again? David knows firsthand God is a God of grace. You see, this request from David is, is, is wonderful. Even though God says no, the request is good because it demonstrates David, in spite of his sin, in spite of all of the consequences, has not decided, well, God surely wouldn't be gracious to me anymore. After all I've done, I'm sure God is done with me. No. God says, your son is going to die. The son falls ill and David falls before Lord. Please do that grace thing. I want my boy and I know you can allow him to live. David, the grace of God is the fuel for that request. Now, David also understands if God grants that request, it will be 100% grace if he gets the life of his son. When the, when the child dies, David is a little bit like, I mean, I can't be that mad because I didn't get grace. Grace is something I don't, what? I don't deserve. See, here's where we go wrong when we don't get our expectations and our desires, and I mean good desires, not sinful desires. When we don't get our good expectations and desires fulfilled, we have the tendency to feel like God has wronged us by not giving us grace that those expectations are. David, this is so mature. It's an extremely difficult uh, attitude to embrace, but it's good and it's right. David's like, hey, this would have just been something I didn't deserve, this precious little baby that I wanted so bad. I wanted to raise this little guy, get to know this little guy. But me having him wouldn't have been something I ever earned or deserved. And again, David has the hope of knowing, I'll see this little guy again. David knows he is covered by the grace of God. He knows he's confident somehow in his, that Old Testament era he lived in of eternal life. I, I will get to know this little guy again. This world is not all there is. So David gets up, it's cleaned up. One more thing that's really important here. It's not on the screen here, but David apparently hadn't eaten in a week. But he does one thing before he, after he gets cleaned up, before he eats. And he goes to church, our equivalent of church, and he worships God. Fasting is a discipline we, that's open to us 
it's, it's talked about in the New Testament. Fasting it can be good. But fasting is not a way to try to put God's arm behind his back and make God do what we want. Fasting is a way to demonstrate outwardly with my life, with my real needs, this truth to God, that I've grasped this internally. God, what I really need is you more than I need even the things I need. Like I need food to survive. But this time I usually eat, I'm going to set that aside and give even that time to you because you are my greatest need. And so David, before he ends his fast, he goes and he worships the God, letting him know, God, I understand in spite of this desire of my heart that's good, that I wanted my son. None of that is more important than than my want for you. Your goodness hasn't had a hiccup. Your grace hasn't taken a vacation. And I still need you more than I need anything else. And he demonstrates that by worshiping even before he eats. The story moves on. And in verses 24 and 25, we learn where Solomon came from. Solomon is the son of David who will become king in David's place. And these two little verses are an amazing display of God's grace. David, he cares about Bathsheba's heart and her pain. He comforts her. Um, At some point, she conceives. They have a son. David names him Solomon. And then this weird little story where God sends word like, hey, I got my own nickname for your son. You can call him Solomon. I call him Jedediah. Jedediah just means loved by the Lord, loved by Yahweh. Here's why this is a picture of of God's, God's grace on full display. God has promised David previously, I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you the way I took it away from Saul. God promised David a royal lineage, a royal family, and ultimately the Christ, the Messiah, will come through one of David's descendants, right? Well, listen, David, to his shame, David had multiple wives and he has lots of sons. God could have chosen any of them to carry the royal lineage and to be the great, 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 great granddaddy of the Christ. And you know what God does? God takes this sinful, awful union that is the lowest point in David's life and says, that's where I'm going to bring Jesus from. I'm going to bring the Messiah through David and Bathsheba. And they have this son after, God, after the last one died. They have a new son and God sends word. Hey, I still love this one. Don't let anything that has happened in the past distract you from this truth. I love you still, David. And I love your son. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to save the whole earth through this family. David and Bathsheba. Because God is a God of grace. And then at the end of this chapter, we read verses 
26 to the end, and it's the story of this, like, of warfare all of a sudden. And we can read this and go, what, what is this doing here? It seems really out of place. Did it seem out of place when we read it together? It, sh- I, I, it does. We read this and go, what's this story doing here? But you know what? If we back up and think about this, if we go back before chapter 11, we were reading the story of David and the Israelites fighting against the Ammonites. The story picks back up right here. The last time we saw Joab, he was besieging a city named Rabbah. War was the big deal. War was the storyline. You know what's been out of place? All of David's sin. That's the stuff that's out of place. Isn't it amazing how our own failures and sin can make it seem like, like the big stuff in the rest of the world doesn't really matter all that much? We're like, and now back to our regularly scheduled program. Oh yeah, there's a war going on that doesn't even seem like it mattered. And we learn something from that too. This stuff that never should have happened, the stuff that's so ugly and black, that's the stuff God saves the whole world through somehow. And all of a sudden... Warfare seems like a footnote. Just to tell you what we read in that, Joab, who's David's nephew and commander of his army, he, he does David a real solid here. Here's what this story is. Joab sends word back to Uncle David. It's like, hey, this city's about to fall. Like I can tell it's, it's about go time here. Why don't you come out here and be the one that takes this city? See, Joab, he's politically astute. Joab knows David's not the golden boy in everybody's eyes anymore because he's been embroiled in this massive scandal. And he knows the last thing you need, Uncle Dave, is for your top military leader to get some really positive headlines. Maybe people will start thinking, hey, maybe Joab should be the guy around here. So he says, hey, I don't want that. Why don't you come out here and take this city? Let's get back to work. Let's put you on display it really is a, is a good look at being a, a loyal subordinate. So this passage is again how David is a model for us. Yet again. And I think the lasting impression that this half of this chapter should have for us is this. We need to really believe that God is a God of grace even after we really, really blow it. David, David has recently become a betrayer of his friends, a betrayer of his family, a betrayer of his nation, a murderer, and an adulterer. Then David's son was stricken ill by the Lord, and he lay on his deathbed, and David is still able to think this way. Who knows, the Lord can still be gracious to me. David never stopped believing that grace was like the economy that God deals in. David has confessed and repented. And he's back to walking with the God of grace. Now let me ask you, what are the things and when are the times 
when you stop believing that God might be gracious to you? Is it when you've really blown it? Is it when you've sinned and you hate what you've done so much that you're convinced God has to hate what you've done so much that he actually hates you? Or do you just sort of not believe God really works that way? He really doesn't give people their requests. So I kind of feel silly asking him. Either he doesn't act that way, or he certainly wouldn't do that for you. When are the times, we all struggle with this, when are the times when you like stop taking your request to God? You stop asking. Let me just ask, is God a God of grace or not? Because when we stop asking, we stop believing God is a God of grace. We do. Because here's what we are saying when we stop asking. He won't give that to me because I don't, what? I don't deserve it. Well, that's why it's called grace. You you can't be gracious towards someone who deserves it. You can't be gracious towards someone who deserves it. So if you're going to be gracious to someone else, if you're waiting till someone deserves it, you're not even trying to be gracious. And if you only expect God to be good toward those who have somehow earned it, you don't believe God is gracious. Now, grace is not giving us all we ask, or again, it wouldn't be grace. And he's not obligated, or it wouldn't be grace. But really believing that God is a God of grace, that's, that's like the key to going toward God when life really, really hurts. If I don't believe God is gracious, when life hurts, I'll feel like I've got, I'm getting what I deserve, so I can't go toward the one who could have kept this pain from me. Because he could. That has got to be ground ground zero of our relationship with God is his grace. David David gets this. And really, to where else are we going to go? To where else are we going to go? God, God not only is a God of grace, but he can redeem the worst points of our lives like he does with David. He saved the entire universe through a relationship that never should have happened. When you get to Jesus' uh, beginning of Matthew and you see his genealogy, don't, don't myth Bathsheba is in there and what the message is there. That was wrong. That was sin and I hated it. God says, but I can redeem. I can redeem sin and sinners. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you are gracious even when we fail to believe in your grace. Because we want to earn your approval when we fail, We feel like you will remove your goodness. 
Thank you for this difficult story where we see that's not, that's not true. All that we have is grace. And you never stop being gracious even when this world really, really hurts. God, thank you for your grace and thank you for the time around this table where we celebrate your greatest act of grace. Solomon and David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, who died for us that we might live with him. In his name we pray, amen. The reason we can be sure, the reason we can be sure that God is a God of grace is because the one that God promised to David came. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He deserved to be king the first time. But instead, he allowed people he had created to arrest him, to spit on him, to torture him, and to execute him. Under the wrath of God, we deserve for our sins. And he did all that so that our punishment would be paid for, that, so that we might inherit what only he deserved. It is the greatest act of grace we could ever begin to fathom. It is ground zero of our faith. Once a month we celebrate it by taking the symbols he gave us for his body and his blood. We put that inside of us as a demonstration of the gospel. This is what I depend on for my standing before God because he is a God of grace. As the men come forward, pray with me over the bread. Father, thank you for sending your son whom you loved though only one in whom you were well pleased to die the death the rest of us deserved. Commune with us while the bread comes around in Jesus' name. Amen.